I'm always very grateful to be able to sit here in this uh, in this beautiful room with people who I uh, know that whether I know them or not have their hearts dedicated to peace and kindness and goodness and a world of sharing and equality. And there are some days when I'm really, really grateful for that. And uh, today is one of those days. And because we're very close to the 11th of September tomorrow, I was very glad. Glad's the wrong word. I was very sustained two years ago when we began to sit together on the night of the 11th and all day on the 12th and the next day and the next day. Very grateful for community and particularly for community that uh, shares with me this intention of the heart to recognize the good and to imagine a time when uh, really the goodness that's the fundamental intention of the human heart that really is the way that we are constructed in what, this what the Buddha called the best possible realm to be born into this human realm with the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 woes that serve as the training ground for the heart to convert itself to uh, peace. If you've never been here before then I certainly welcome you to Spirit Rock and I hope that you come back again. This is our uh, ordinary weekly weekly meeting time. We meet every Wednesdays from 9 to almost 11. And uh, it's unusual today that we get to meet up here. And uh, I'm very glad for it. Some of you may have never been in this extraordinary room before. So I'm glad that we're able to be here. There's some way in which my, uh, my spirit picks up just by sitting in here. Uh, first of all, because of the beauty of the architecture and because it reminds me of the ingenuity of the human mind that can design such a beautiful place. Also because at, at, at this point we have uh, four years into our fifth year of sitting in here as a community. So many people have sat in here and wished well. At the com- if we had a readout, a computer readout of the numbers of times that the phrase, may all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering, has passed through the airwaves in here, it would be a lot of times, and the heart waves in here, may I be peaceful, may you be peaceful, may all beings be peaceful, may my heart be free of enmity and danger. In a world that's uh, so complex these days, it's really wonderful to know that there are places like this one, where the practice, the fundamental practice, is rededication of the heart to a place of peace. I found myself in the last few years saying uh, often 
We are living in such complex times. We're often startled and frightened. I don't know that the world, I don't think that the world became more complex two years ago, yesterday. I think it was complex before. And that the troubles in the world started on that day. What actually we recognize, I think, when we come to this day is we recognize that it was a day of uh, communal startle, communal startle, communal bereavement. (coughs) I thought about it this morning and I thought, I think it was uh, in some way the largest uh, sudden group mourning that we did as Americans. There have been times before, even in my lifetime back in um, the early 1940s, where there was a sudden bereavement that everyone felt. This was a very sudden bereavement, and terrible and huge, and even in terms of numbers, bigger bereavements have happened in this century, some of them in a moment. But not in our immediate family. And I think... Um, in, in some way, uh, just as it is with a family, where not all family members uh, get along with each other or see things the same way, regardless of a person's politics two years ago, regardless of what they thought of government, that we really felt a communal, a communal bereave, a communal loss very much because of the numbers on that day and also I think because of our modern communication. We can all know about it at the same time. So I think the appropriate thing to do as we start this morning, which really I envision as a rededication of our hearts to peace, a re-examination of how we get startled away from peace, a reaffirming of the possibility in the middle of a very difficult world to really live out of a place of peace. What I hope will be a morning of hope and uh, in fact a discussion of joy. I really want us to begin with some silence as a uh, as a tribute, as a reflection um, for the people who died on that, on September 11, 2001, and uh, for the people that they left, the people directly affected, all of us were and are affected, but uh, the thousands of partners that were left behind parents that were bereaved, children that were left without one, or in some cases both parents, children who uh, were born in uh, the months following, who uh, hadn't been born on that day, who uh, will never get to meet uh, their father, except by photograph and by story. 
So on behalf of all of those people, I think we could just sit quietly. So we'll sit for uh, 15 minutes. Make your heart attentive to their memory in whatever way is most comfortable for you, in whatever way you know the best. We'll just sit quietly.
I wanted us to sit entirely quietly. Partly because there's a sense of um, there not being anything to say in response to grievous loss that measures up in the hearts of the people who experience the loss to the enormity of the loss. There's nothing that can be said. Also because I think silence is one of the um, things that soothes the heart. That um, one of the things that people discover from their contemplative practice here or away from here is that there's just a way in which the mind and the heart revive themselves. Probably be more correct to say the mind and the heart revive itself since it's not actually differentiated in Buddhist psychology. Um, in the space of being held in a, comfort- a comforting silence. And also particularly because two years ago one of the things that was true, as it is today, is that uh, September 11th was uh, the day after, day before our precepts uh, renewal day. Today it was a Tuesday. You remember this year it's a Thursday. Uh, it was a, a Tuesday two years ago. So Wednesday, it's part of the normal course of events here at Spirit Rock for us to come early, some of us, on Wednesday mornings and recite ethical precepts of conduct together. Um, we do that on the, first, on the second Wednesday of every month. You're invited to come anytime. And uh, when we came together that Wednesday morning, everyone was, regardless of where you were, you were probably in a community that was startled into silence, as we were. And uh, I was really profoundly glad that most of our liturgy is silence, so that uh, it didn't get complicated. There seemed to be nothing that we could say in response. But the liturgy for Wednesday mornings uh, on the second Wednesday of the month is the recitation of precepts, which is the rededication of one's own heart to a life of non-harming in any way. And uh, somehow when we said the precepts that morning, they sounded to me uh, illuminated. They had never seemed so pregnant with import. They seemed at that point the most miraculous thing that a human being could say and the only appropriate thing to say in, um, at a time like that and as a response to that. The response really being to a, a wisdom response, both as a response to the fear in the heart and the startle and the grief, to remind oneself, yes, human beings can do this. They can, aware of the challenges of life and aware of the passions that arise, they can nevertheless behave in a way that is honoring and respecting of life. 
but really also as a wisdom response, recognizing uh, in really seeing what had happened on the day before, the terrible consequences of um, uninvestigated passions, of uh, the terrible uh, consequences of ignorance, that um, greed and hatred and confusion unaddressed in a life and in the world create terrible suffering. And that the wisdom response to that as well is a rededication of one's own heart to um, kindness and compassion. So we said at that time the five precepts. We said them this morning as well in our early morning sit. I'd like to say them again now. I'd like to say them to you and have you say them to me back. I undertake the precept to abstain from harming living beings. I undertake the precept to abstain from harming living beings. I undertake the precept to abstain from taking that which is not freely given. I undertake the precept to abstain from taking that which is not freely given. I undertake the precept to abstain from speech that is exploitive or abusive. I undertake the precept to abstain from speech that is exploitive or abusive. I undertake the precept to abstain from expressing my sexuality in a way that causes suffering. I undertake the precept to abstain from any activity that confuses my mind and leads to heedlessness. I undertake the precept to abstain from any activity that confuses my mind and leads to heedlessness. May these precepts be a cause for the liberation of all beings. May these precepts be a cause for happiness. May these precepts be a cause for the liberation of all beings. May these precepts be a cause for happiness. I invite you to reflect for just a few moments about how it feels in your body and your heart to have said that, to have made that uh, declaration.
You know, one of the things that happened for me, um, one of the lessons that I took away from September 11th, two years ago, which has really remained um, central to the way I, uh, I've taught in these last two years, uh, really is maybe the organizing and organizing principle for my practice, is uh, I got an email when I got home late that night and uh, read all my emails from that day, as you probably did, and there were many. I, uh, the shortest email I got, or the one that I remember the most, which was very short, uh, said three instructions. It said, um, pray for the people who died, pray for the people they left behind, and pray that your heart stays open. And that third of those instructions I really have taken with me as really the organizing principle of my life, of my practice since then. I don't know another way to talk about the fact that I am convinced that we are each of us born with a heart naturally inclined to relationship, to friendship, to compassion, to uh, empathic rejoicing. Uh, I think we're relational beings, most of us. Some of us probably more than others. You know, I I think there are different genes. Some of us are really gregarious and some of us are more shy. And I think there are different uh, temperaments. But really, I think we are born relational. That... uh, hands receive us when we're born and other hands at the end of our lives do whatever is left with what's left of us. Um, And in between, I think we get passed hand to hand that people carry us around. A friend of mine uh, has a new baby and sent a photo of the new baby and its mother on the uh, internet yesterday. So when I got home late last night and I read my email, I could open this email, and here's this wee tiny baby, and uh, its mother holding it, and it's so small it fits in both hands, you know, just like that. And I, I thought a little bit about it's being held in these hands, and it'll get held and held and held, and then at some point it'll it'll need assistance, it'll hold its uh, a hand, but it'll walk, and then it'll walk on its own, but it'll need a hand crossing the streets. And then, and I, I love in airports watching people walking along with different levels of people holding here or here or here. Everybody is holding somebody in some way. I think about the way that the hand holding is going with my youngest grandchild that's down here now, with my oldest grandchild is now bigger than me and now has a driver's license and drives me places. So in some really serious way, my life is in his hands, and I completely trust it that way. And it's amazing to me, because the day before yesterday, he was born, you know, and the whole life has gone by. But there's a way in which I think we are relational and dependent on each other. If we saw that, that the relational and the dependency really is fundamental to our getting through this difficulty of living a life in the best of all possible worlds, which we don't have yet, 
where we would still have old age sickness and death and the loss that comes with that. How important it is that we hold each other, that we know how to reach out and hold hands, and that the hands extend further than the folks that we exactly know directly. When September 11th happened, everybody who was affected directly by that event became our family in a certain way. Do you remember in the New York Times they had little vignettes of this person and that person and this person and that person? And all of a sudden you read about a person, not just as a statistic of that day, but you also found out that this particular person coached the uh, junior high school soccer uh, basketball team at uh, St. Vincent's Parish every Tuesday night, that everybody's got a life and stuff they do. And everybody became, in some way, through their name and their relationships, related to everybody else. There was a way in which astounding and distressing and uh, painful as that whole experience was, there was the, of, of such gigantic loss, there was the uh, parallel experience of how courageous people were and how helpful people were and how spontaneously helpful they were with people who were strangers to themselves. And realize that when the mind clears and we wake up out of our communal confusion, we realize, hey, we are family. Everybody counts. The person next to me at any point, wherever I am, is my family. Certainly has happened to me, maybe to you, that it always happens to me that when uh, the plane that I'm flying in starts to bounce around a lot, I talk to the person next to me and we sort of hold each other up by talking and say, wow, is this the worst flight you ever had? Well, no, I had a worse one. And, you know, but somehow or another we talk ourselves through those rough places. Once it was rough enough that talking was out of the question and uh, I reached over and held the hand of a woman I didn't know at all. But that's right, really, it seemed like the right thing to do. We just held hands until that was passed and they would let go of the hands and the captain came on and said, sorry folks, that was what we call a mountain wave. And everybody said, you know, <laughs> don't have that mountain wave again. But we reach out and, and, and care for each other when our minds are clear, when we aren't frightened, when we aren't really disconnected from our good heart. I don't think that we're, uh, I think we are naturally and reflexively attendant to our own needs. When we get frightened, we take care of ourselves. But I don't think we're naturally self-absorbed. I think we're naturally interested in what's going on out there. I think we naturally are looking around. If we aren't preoccupied, if we're not in pain and caught up in our own story, then we can look around and see what everybody else's story is. And I think what happens when we see it is we get changed from our normal thinking of this is my family to realizing everybody is and that everybody's in trouble because everybody's got a life. We get startled, though. We get startled into self-preoccupation. We get frightened. 
wanted to talk about what are the things that we do to keep ourselves, um, to unstartle ourselves. This is Abaya. She is uh, one of the people who works here at Spirit Rock. And she recently got that new name. Do you want to stand up so people can see you? And this morning we did a blessing for her in the early morning for her new name. I won't even tell you her old name. Her new name is Abaya. And uh, Ajahn Amaro uh, gave it to her. And uh, it's her Dharma name, and it means fearless. And uh, we talked this morning about what a good name that is for, uh, for anybody. And I wanted to think a little bit with you together about how, um, for me anyway, it's not about not getting startled. It's about knowing what are the things that I can do to unstartle myself so that I don't live in fear. I think it's not possible for us not to startle. I want to startle. I mean, if I catch the hem of my dress and my shoe as I'm walking down the steps, I startle and I grab myself and I don't fall down the steps. It's important to startle. We jump out of the way of moving cars because we startle. We don't think, hmm, what should I do now? We jump out of the way of them. So I want to startle. I am counting on my startle mechanism protecting me. I don't want to get locked in startled because startled is of necessity self-absorbed. And then I'll forget to look around. I will not be in touch with my own connectability, with my own good heart. And I really won't be alive in the way that I want to be. I think I'm actually alive when my own heart is available for connection. I think we got frightened two years ago when we actually weren't clear about what was happening and then knew what was happening and then didn't know what would happen next. And I think that there's a certain amount of, uh, there was for some period of time, naturally, some amount of uh, fearfulness about, "Uh uh-oh, what now? The kind of fearfulness um, that sometimes, uh, actually doesn't, well, the kind of concern, let's take it out of fearfulness, that sometimes uh, seems appropriate, like if a hurricane is forecast off the coast of Florida, and you see videos of um, people going to, uh, to uh, hardware stores and buying flashlights and batteries and preparing themselves and bracing themselves. That, that's out of a startle of, uh-oh, what could happen? But it seems like a reasonable concern. Go and get batteries and do the things that you need to do. And while you're startled, the mind is on high alert. It's taking care of oneself and one's family. It's not peaceful again. Then people say, well, that's past. You say, oh, okay. Then there are the startles of the heart that have to do with a loss of faith. 
sometimes come out of confusion. I thought of two things um, that were helpful to me two years ago. I thought I would tell you about them. One of them was in reciting the precepts in the day after, on September 12th, which calmed down the heart, reminding myself that really this is where I want to live, not in reactivity but in kindness, not in anger or retribution or vengeful thought, but in kindness, in taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, really talking about the possibility of living out of a place of peace. It calmed my mind enough to restore a certain amount of wisdom. The wisdom is this. This is much better than I could have uh, articulated it at that point. But I think the wisdom that was helpful, if I could have articulated it, was uh, what happened, and this is true of whatever always happens, what happens is a result of causes and conditions. There were causes and conditions of that day, as there are causes and conditions for everything. So that it wasn't an accident, it wasn't random. It would be really frightening, really frightening, and completely, I think, confusing if this were a random, random cosmos, if things happened without antecedent causes. As soon as I could think to myself, all of this happened because of causes, some of them quite tragic causes, the, 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 the inequalities that exist in the world, uh, the difficulties of life in different parts of the world, the misunderstandings between peoples of the world, fundamentally the presence of greed, hatred, and delusion in minds all over the world that uh, have not yet figured out that only sharing as a world community is going to make a difference in terms of world peace forever. But when I could realize that those are all those and way past what I could possibly articulate are the reasons, the causes and conditions, and that what happened was a lawful result of causes and conditions, individual causes and conditions, global causes and conditions, then I could begin to think the future is also going to be a future that evolves out of causes and conditions. And I am one of those causes and conditions. And my heart, dedicated to peace, is one of the causes and conditions of the whole rest of the world, as so is yours. And that really, uh, it gives a lot of courage to me to think I certainly cannot single-handedly change the course of history but everybody could. And that that possibility, that the conversion of the human heart to peace is a possibility. And if everyone did it, the world would be different, is a possibility. Then there's nothing for me to do except rededicate my heart to peace and tell as many people as I meet that that's what I'm dedicated to, so they might be inspired to do it. Does that make sense to you, that that was so encouraging? Alone, not, but the whole world, yes. Peace is a possibility for the world. That is the possibility of the human heart. It can get mad and not do something. It can be mad 
and not be violent. It can be mad and not be abusive. Anger arises. It does. We get startled. Uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, my, one of my favorite lines from him. Someone said to him once in a huge lecture that he was giving in uh, Irvine, the night before it was actually announced that he'd uh, won the Nobel Prize, he um, sat alone on the stage in Irvine, 6,000 people asking him questions, doing questions and answers with 6,000 people. And somebody said, uh, do you ever get angry? And he laughed his little laugh. He's got this funny little laugh. He He said, yes. He said, of course. He said, "Uh, things happen. They're not going your way. Anger arises. But it's not a problem. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't do it very well, but he's got a very good ha. It's very distinctive. Everybody got it, that it's part of the human response system to get angry. You don't have to be vengeful about it. You don't have to wreak havoc about it. You can get angry about it and reframe it. Do something else about it. Address it. (coughs) Do you want to hear a poem about that? I thought I'd read this poem later on, but I'll read it now. I'll read the poem, then you can think about it a little bit, and um, Edie play as we think for three or four minutes, just so everybody's mind settles down a little bit. So first I'll read. This is Billy Collins. The name of this poem is Another Reason Why I Don't Keep a Gun in the House. <laughs> the neighbor's dog will not stop barking. He is barking the same high, rhythmic bark that he barks every time they leave the house. They must switch him on on their way out. (laughs) The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. I close all the windows in the house and put on a Beethoven symphony full blast, but I can still hear him muffled under the music, barking, barking, barking. And now I can see him sitting in the orchestra, his head raised confidently, as if Beethoven had included a part for Barking Dog. (laughs) When the record finally ends, he's still barking, sitting there in the oboe section, barking, his eyes fixed on the conductor who is entreating him with his baton, while the other musicians listen in respectful silence to the famous Barking Dog solo. (laughs) The endless coda that first established Beethoven as an innovative
I think a lot about what it is that um, keeps picking up the heart in spite of all the challenges that it meets. I, I, uh, I don't actually remember the name of the end of the uh, proverb that everyone knows about hope springs eternal, but maybe that's the end of it, hope springs eternal. That what is it that brings back hopefulness? We get up every morning. In spite of the fact that our lives are difficult, most people do. Sometimes, in truth, people can't do anymore, and that's very sad. But for the most part, most of us are really, um, we are all um, veterans of a whole life of uh, challenges that we've met one way or another. And we're still here. And we're still hopeful about being able to rejuvenate our hearts to love. And I think about um, the different ways in which uh, my heart mind, uh, maybe I can make one word out of it, uh, is from time to time from time to time unable to keep on doing what it does naturally, which is to love and to care for. So one way I have been talking about the way in which when the mind is startled, uh uh-oh, and the heart closes with a certain amount of tension, just because it feels physically, there's a cellular kind of response to uh, jeopardy. I think there's, in me anyway, a mental response to um, jeopardy, I, I get I get spiritually afraid. I think I, I might think of it as a loss of faith, maybe, when I think the amount of greed, hatred, and delusion in the world is just too much. Um, or maybe it's not true that people are fundamentally good. I believe that so much when I'm clear-minded and when I am, uh, when I'm clear-minded. I believe that so much. And then sometimes, I'll tell you a story. Um, A week after September 11th, two years ago, uh, I spent a part of a day with a friend of mine who lives in another city does a similar kind of work. Uh, We'd had an appointment to meet that day uh, because he was to be in the Bay Area and we'd had this time set aside to meet each other. And uh, the time was set before September 11th. So when we met, we hadn't seen or spoken to each other in a long time, seen each other in person in a long time, nor spoken since the event. But we met at the prescribed time in the prescribed place, and we spent some time together. And we talked about uh, how we had, each of us, been dealing with that event. And in the interim, the the almost a week that had gone by here, uh, I had been mostly here at Spirit Rock. You all know that because many of you were here with me. The day of uh, September 11th itself, I actually spent in Marin General Hospital 
with one of my daughters who needed the surgery that you have after a pregnancy fails. And it was the beginning of the second trimester, so we had the personal grief of that loss. And um, all around us on the television monitors, the monumental loss um, of uh, the whole New York community, the whole, the whole of the country riveted to. That was quite a, it was an extraordinary juxtaposition, by the way, of uh, my daughter and uh, her immediate family gathered around her and other families gathered around them, each with their own particular sadness or difficulty. And all of us surrounded by this whole monumental event happening in New York that was in all of the rooms and in all the corridors on the TV monitors. And in both places, I could see a simultaneous image of a person suffering and consolers gathering around. And here in my personal family and here in this family, another suffering but consolers gathered around. And all these packets of suffering and consolers and suffering and consolation and surrounded by the whole scene of a communal suffering and a communal response of compassion. And I thought to myself, the whole world is made up of uh, consolers, consoling whoever at that moment needs consolation. We're just gathered in different packages. And it was a long week for us all. And when I met my friend a week later, I uh, needed to tell that also personal story. I told about what had gone on in Spirit Rock. And I talked about how glad I was, really, how grateful for a community that I could come and sit quietly with that would reflect back to me the fact that really what we want is peace and really what we're committed to is peace. And I got to tell the truth of my personal family loss. And at the end of it all, I got to say at the end of my recitation, I said something like, you know, and the truth is, I'm really tired. So I did this whole week and um, I was up for everything that I needed to do. I said, I'm really tired. And I said, you know what? Uh, on the edge of my mind, I'm really frightened. I'm thinking to myself, this is so monumentally um, challenging. Awakening us to the level of distress in the world. Not that the distress wasn't there before, but m- certainly illuminating the level of difficulty the world is in and reflecting in that the monumental amount of greed and hatred and delusion that exists in the world. And I said, maybe there is so much greed, hatred, and delusion. Maybe it's too late. I said, maybe all of us that are teaching about the natural inclination of the heart to the good, even that we believe it, maybe it's too late. Maybe there's too much greed, hatred, and delusion in the world. Maybe we're saying what we know is true and uh, no one is listening, or maybe not enough people are listening. Maybe it's not going to make any difference at all. 
Maybe we should all stop trying. Stop trying to say what what we know is true. Maybe it's not going to make any difference. And uh, my friend said to me, really, without any significant pause, he said, that's not an option. And I hope that you felt in that moment just now the uplift of the heart that I felt in that moment. I've been thinking about it actually for two years, really parsing out how did that, why did it pick up my heart? In that moment, it picked it up, and I knew that it did. And I felt very consoled because my heart knew it wasn't an option long before I could figure out why it isn't an option. It isn't an option because it is, it's the imperative of one's own good heart that makes it not an option. That even, I thought to myself, if this whole enterprise of life on earth doesn't work out, even if it's really true that there is so much greed and hatred and delusion and it has so gone wild that this whole enterprise won't come to a good end, even at the end of it, may it not be so. I have the conviction, absolutely, that there will be people left at the very end consoling the people that they can touch and console that there will be people left saying it could have been otherwise, that there will be people left taking care of the people who are frightened, that there will be people left ministering. I think it's the imperative of of one's own good heart. And I think it's connecting with the imperative of one's own good heart that really lifts it up, that we lift ourselves up not by our own bootstraps, but by our own heart straps.
So what we've been talking about all along is uh, part of it's true, and I think it is, that we're born to be lovers and consolers and appreciators. How does it happen that we forget to do that? We get confused by fear, overwhelmed by grief, tired. And sometimes have the wisdom that sees through the moment and realizes things are the way they are because of conditions and they can change depending on conditions. And still wisdom or no wisdom takes a while for the heart to recuperate from a grief. It's as if it suffers a blow, like a physical blow to the body. So I've been thinking a lot about What are the things, in addition to wisdom or faith, that pick up the heart, that cause it to balance itself, keep on going in spite of? Wisdom helps, time helps, but I think joy also helps a lot. When thinking about joy on... um, Oh, Monday morning this week, I uh, went to the gym. And if you go to a gym a lot, and you go at uh, the same time, more or less, uh, you know, the same people are getting dressed and undressed next to you. So here comes Mary, who uh, is, usually shares a, a bench with me. Uh, I'm usually putting on my clothes. I'm finished with the workout, and Mary's arriving. But we always change a few words together. And she came in, and she looked a little bit droopy for a Monday morning. And I said, uh, you know, the usual hello, are you okay? And she said, yeah. She said, but I'm exhausted. She said, yesterday morning, we had some uh, really old and dear friends from out of town come 
And we went out to West Marin and we had breakfast in this great place. And then I, we dashed back because our next door neighbors were having their 90, and that neighbor was having his 90th birthday party. And uh, then at night we went to a wedding celebration. <laughs> so she said, I did too much celebrating. So then, uh, and uh, also indicated that maybe she ate too much from the too much celebrating. And then we talked about, could you, and I began, and I thought about it all morning. I thought, is there, a thi- is there such a thing as too much celebrating. And I said to her, you know, Mary, maybe it's a good thing that you did that to start this week because it's going to be a heavy week of um, intense recollection of a communal grief and mourning. So maybe it was like a preparation for this week, that heavy (laughs) celebrating. But I've been thinking really a lot about it, about is there such a thing as too much celebrating? Um... There are causes for celebration, you know. There, I think there's a part of us that is so programmed in to celebrate beauty, to celebrate, um, to celebrate love. Actually, we get really excited when people fall in love and declare it and uh, tell people about it. The email I got uh, with the new baby on it last night was the email that said uh, we have our new baby and we are all in love with each other and uh, I don't know a better way to say that Uh, actually the emails we we, uh, didn't say how much this new baby weighs or how long she is but that's not the important piece of information it even says we don't know what her name is yet we haven't figured it out we're working on it I'll let you know but uh but I do know that all those people are in love. And we celebrate the fact that people fall in love and stay that way. We know how that feels, and we have that capability. So can you really celebrate too much? You celebrate when other people's joy. You know, you probably notice that these buildings up here have names. This is Metta, Karuna, Mudita, and Upeka, And they mean friendliness and compassion, and empathic joy, and equanimity. And empathic joy is what mudita is. It's um, the kind of delight that you have when other people have some really good fortune. And I think a lot of times it's uh, underrated as a uh, spiritual discipline, like compassion. Oh, that looks like a really, like, that's like... um, senior practice, you know, they, you know, not only get used to yourself, or friendliness, okay, but compassion, hey, you know, that's really the heavy practice. Or could I stand to do compassion practice because I have to look at the suffering in the world? I actually think that it's all looking at suffering, and that mudita is looking at suffering as well, through the lens of the, the really substantial, well, substantial is the wrong word since everything is ephemeral, the really uh, um, acknowledged moments of joy and beauty and happiness and good fortune in the world. There are all of those moments. There are causes for celebration. 
actually in the uh, Brahma Vihara, each of those is called a Brahma Vihara, which means a divine abode. It means that it's a lovely place to live. Do you imagine if your mind lived in friendliness and compassion, in sympathetic joy and in equanimity? Could you think of a better address? When people say, where do you live? They say, I live in friendliness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. You, you know my neighborhood? It's a good neighborhood. It's a very safe one. You can, can come out of my neighborhood whenever you want. It's okay there. It's a marvelous thing to think about. But sometimes it sounds like mudita. It's like, well, sure, who doesn't rejoice in everybody else's joy? We all don't completely rejoice, especially if other people have good fortune in an area where we would like. We, it, it, there's a, the Murita is really a phenomenal um, uh, screening device for the unmet longings of our own heart. You hear about good fortune of somebody else. They have met somebody and fallen in love. Well, it's great, and you're really happy for them. If you have also met somebody and fallen in love, you know? And if you haven't, it's extremely painful because then you think, how come they met somebody and fell in love and I didn't? And then you see a certain kind of envy that comes out. And envy is a really, because you really would rather that they hadn't done that because their having done it brings out your own longing and causes you to feel pain, the pain of your own longing, and then you feel the extra pain of your own non-open heart, because everybody, I'm sure everybody here has the, the tape that plays that says, if I were really a spiritual person, I, da, 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 I would not feel this feeling of envy in response. There are moments when people have exactly what we want, and we are not envious, and I am not envious. Someone has exactly what I want, and in those moments, I feel free as anything. I love those moments. Say, look, really, peace is possible. There it is, the prize that I wanted. Someone else has got it, and I am happy for them. It is such an enormous liberation. But I can't decide to do it. I can want to do it. I can keep in my mind the hope that my heart will do it. But if my heart is hanging on, I am stuck with the suffering. There's a peace, there's a very substantial peace between the wisdom of what is, brings the end of suffering and the heart bringing itself up to speed. You know, that you really, there's a difference between saying, and people will say that sometimes, they'll say, well, if you just let go, you wouldn't suffer. Well, who doesn't know? You know? <laughs> uh, if we could, we would. Nobody purposely suffers. But you know, the heart has its own timetable. It gets ready to do it when it gets ready to do it. So Mudita is very complicated. In a, in a certain sense, it, it illuminates my own un, unmet desires. It illuminates my envy and my, uh, uh, my, indeed, greed, wish that the other person didn't have it so it wouldn't make me this problem. Uh, it illuminates my own ignorance, really, on some very fundamental level. If I were clear all the time and ignorance had not arisen, I would know that the circumstances are the circumstances because of everything else. And anybody's good fortune as well as anybody's painful fortune is the result of circumstances. It can't be other. 
person is having this good fortune because the causes and conditions were there. They're having this painful situation because the causes and conditions were there. It's not because when the mind says, how come they got it? That's how come. The causes and conditions for that being there were there and they weren't here with me, that's all. They might be at some other time. If I could see, it cannot be otherwise. Maybe that's a way um, my heart could relax. It's a movement over into another liturgy, but I've been thinking about thy will be done being a way of recognition of that. Doesn't, doesn't, it means, let me not fight with the way things are. If I move back into my tradition, then talk about Ajahn Sumedho, who uh, is a very dear and trusted teacher of all of us here, and, and friend of ours, whose favorite gesture for me is a gesture that he makes with his hand when he says, when things are happening and they're difficult for me, I say to myself, it's like this. And then it's okay. But I can't, it's like the Dalai Lama's ha ha ha. I haven't quite figured out how to do that gesture exactly right, because if I could do it exactly right, you would get the transmission like I did. <laughs> Somebody told me it's quite close to what teenagers are now saying when they say, whatever. But, uh, you know, but actually, Sometimes I think that whatever has a little bit of indifference in it, and I'm liking to think that it's like this. It's not with indifference. It's really with seeing it and really seeing it. So I think actually what, the, what really the, the goal of our practice is, and the goal of mudita in a certain way, is once again to see deeply into the truth about suffering. That mudita, even as it seems like um, a practice focusing on good fortune, is another illuminator of suffering because it illuminates the greed in my own heart, the envy in my own heart, the aversion in my own heart, the confusion in my own heart, and the pain, the suffering, that is the result of that ignorance. And that... If the real practice of mudita is not to overcome it by reciting phrases, may you be this, and may your joy increase, and may your joy increase. If in my heart, I'm not there. If, if I really am looking in my heart to the degree of suffering that's there, because greed, hatred, and delusion are there, and I really experience that suffering, then the very experience and the awareness that as long as greed, hatred, and delusion are there, suffering will be there begins to untie the knots that make that habit of greed, hatred, and delusion continually continue to arise. And I begin to really be liberated from it, slowly, slowly, one knot at a time, until the next person comes and says, did you hear about so-and-so? Wow, what happened to them? And then again, you have to untie the knot one more time. But I think it's a very profound practice. If I see the suffering in my own heart, then I, uh, over the things that I want and the things that I don't want, then it makes me less able to make enemies out of other people. That one of the things that I have said is central to my practice in these last couple of years is the first line of the metta chant, may I be free of enmity and danger. 
I used to think that it meant may nobody be after me. So may there not be any enmities coming to get me and the danger that they would bring. I am convinced that the enmity I want to be free of is the enmity in my own heart, which is a source of danger to me because it cuts me off from the fullness of my own lovingness. It makes my heart incomplete. It's a form of heart failure. If I went to a cardiologist who said three of your arteries are blocked, I would change my diet very seriously. Well, what if I find out that several of the channels of my heart are blocked because I have not forgiven that one or not forgiven that one or I'm nursing an enmity of that one? I'd really want to change that. I am in danger of not being fully alive. I actually think that it's seeing of suffering and responding to it that makes us alive. I'll tell you one more little story from the aftermath of September 11th, two years ago. A friend of mine is a rabbi in New York, and uh, he volunteered as a chaplain in one of the centers that was set up right after uh, 9-11 to uh, address the needs that people had. This is a very large um, building uh, somewhere on the river. I think it was a a boat harbor or... um, Anyway, a a warehouse building, huge building that was set up as a place for people to come who had some need that needed to be addressed. The people who didn't know where their people were or didn't know how to file a death certificate or didn't know how to make a, a claim for Social Security or for unemployment or the people whose businesses had failed that were across the street or down the street who needed to know how to go get a small business loan or the people who just needed someone, someone's hands to hold. So there were all manner of people there who were the uh, aid givers in the community, people there from the Social Security Administration, people there from the Board of Health, people there from all of the agencies that respond to all those different kinds of needs. And uh, my friend who uh, went and volunteered with other clergy to be chaplains, was telling me about his job. I said, what do you do? He said, well, all the, cha- the chaplains get to have a green vest, a green and white striped vest. You go around with it. So you can tell who the chaplains are. They're walking around, all of them with the same vest. And uh, here are all these different other people with their particular expertise at their different stations. And uh, he said, what we mostly are supposed to do is Uh, look for the people who come with a need and uh, find out what their need is and take them to the particular department or the particular person with the expertise to help them with their need. And uh, uh, it was very sweet to hear he said, you know, uh, uh, because we're uh, talking about the fact that the people in the Green Vest are clergy, he said, uh, we don't pray with anybody because... um, this is a, uh, we're uh, sanctioned by the Red Cross, which is an agency of the United States government, and we have a separation of church and state. So unless someone says to us, could we sit for a minute and pray together, we can't bring it up. But if they bring it up, then we can do it. <laughs> but uh, the, the, the question that really is answered, that really informed me, was this. I said, uh, so what do you do? He said, well, we just walk around. I said, well, do you go up to people? 
He said, no, you don't exactly go up to people. He said, you walk around and you look around at everybody who's going by and you look to see in their face who needs something. And I thought to myself, what about if the whole world would put on green striped vests and walk around, looking around, as if with a look to see who around them needs something? Because we all need something. And everybody is hurting one way or another. There isn't a single one here who isn't hurting one way or another. Some of us more or less. Some of us in our bodies, some of us in our minds, some in our hearts. Everybody's got something. I thought about... um, I heard about... uh, some new magic intervention, in, interventions in medicine. They have a new pill that's just a, oh, it's not a pill, it's a, it's a little machine that's the size of a pill. It's just about to be perfected. It's not happening yet. I'm hopeful not to have anything bad happen to me until they perfect such a <laughs> device. Because rather than intruding on your body with any of the devices that are currently available to intrude from any orifice, you swallow this little tiny thing. It's the size of a pill. You swallow it, and it's got a camera in it. And it passes through your entire being, taking pictures as it goes along. And uh, seriously, this is not a fantasy. This is going to happen quite soon. It takes pictures. And not only does it take pictures, but when it sees anything suspicious, it takes a biopsy and continues on. uh, That seems to me, first of all, that picks me up tremendously since uh, in my mind it beats any of the other kinds of ways of looking. Also because it's so exciting to me every time I hear some amazing intervention. Because I think to myself, look how smart people are. Look how talented they are. Look what amazing new things. I mean, a hundred years ago we didn't know how to fly an airplane. And two hundred years ago there were no medicines at all in the world. Look what's happened in two hundred years. We have figured out so many things. People wanted to make life less suffering by itself. It will still have the suffering of old age, sickness, and death at some point. But how people could live better. We could have better health. We have, it makes me feel that people will figure out how we can talk to each other. It won't be a new figure out, by the way. People figured it out a long time ago. The Buddha figured it out, and Jesus figured it out. Isaiah figured it out. Everybody figured it out. Everybody who was a wisdom figure in a lineage that remains as a wisdom lineage in the world because the world's shared wisdom is that peace is possible. What we haven't yet figured out is how at one point are we going to unstartle the whole world enough to have them stop to say, let's do it. Let's invite everyone home for dinner. Everyone's in trouble. You know, one of the practices, if you haven't been here a lot or if this is your first time here, we do a practice called metta. 
It's called loving kindness. It's actually friendliness. Loving kindness is a fancy Victorian word for it. It just means friendliness. It means wishing well. Sometimes it's taught as the natural response to mindfulness. If we really looked around, if you look around here, look at this whole room full of people. Everybody's got a story. Everybody's got a story, and part of their story is painful. Less or more, but everybody's got a story. If we knew the secret stories, I think it was Longfellow who said, if we knew the secret history of all our, of our adversaries, all enmity would disappear. The Buddha said that as well. He said, um, anyone who fully understands impermanence ceases to be contentious. We will all be lost to each other, and we have all lost all through our lives, continually. Friends and lovers and hopes and dreams and health and everything else. I think that our lives are one continual reaccommodation to loss. And I don't actually think that that's a sad thing to say. I think that's just a true thing to say. And I think it's a tremendously uplifting thing to say that it is the capacity of the human heart recognizing that continual, inevitable challenge to peace and contentment that we can wish each other well, that we care about other people. We care about ourselves, and we care about other people. Imagine if the whole world, please say these with me. These are the phrases we say. Imagine if the whole world got up tomorrow morning and every single person thinking about themselves in their life, were to say, may I feel protected and safe. May I feel protected and safe. May I feel contented and pleased. May I feel contented and pleased. May my physical body support me with health. Strength. May my life unfold smoothly with ease. So now let's think about what would happen in the world. I'm going to change one word to, I'm going to change health to strength. Because even when we don't have health, we could with our remaining body have strength. What if tomorrow morning, what if this afternoon, Everybody who met everybody anywhere said to them, May you feel protected and safe. May you feel protected and safe. May you feel contented and pleased. May you feel contented and pleased. May your physical body support you with strength. May your physical body support you with strength. May your life unfold smoothly with ease. May your life unfold smoothly with ease. 
may your life unfold smoothly in peace. Reach for one person's hand. If you find yourself without a person, put your hand up. Anybody found themselves without a person? I see we have chains of hands which will work fine. But what you also need is, pair. since we can't have chains of faces, look at somebody in the face. Anybody have not have somebody they're looking in the face of? To the person who, okay, one of the people, and you got three people together, so you have to move around, Dick, so that you're looking at those two people. I'll have Dick come over here. Okay, you're looking at that person in the face. One of you put up your hand, your person one. Okay, the other one of you is person two. Person one now says, looking at their other person, may you feel protected and safe. May you feel contented and pleased. May your physical body support you with strength. May your life unfold smoothly with ease. Now person two will say, May you feel protected and safe. May you feel contented and pleased. May you feel contented and pleased. May your physical body support you with strength. May your physical body support you with strength. May your life unfold smoothly with ease. May your life unfold smoothly with ease. Find another partner. There's going to be one person left over because I just lost Dick here. Mark. Okay. Holding hands, I notice, has taken hold of the situation, so holding hands is permissible. Holding hands is permissible. Holding hands and holding eyes. May you feel protected and safe. May you feel contented and pleased. May your physical body support you with strength. May your life unfold smoothly with ease. Okay, now the other person. May you feel... <laughs> may you, here we go, keeping it together, folks. May you feel protected and safe. May you feel contented and pleased. May you feel 
May your physical body support you with strength. May your life unfold smoothly with ease. May your life unfold smoothly with ease. Okay, now, here's the innovative part. People. <laughs> Keep that partner. Remember who started, so person one is up. This time, you take turns, one sentence and one sentence, but not those same sentences, so that person one might say, take care of yourself. Person two might say, whatever they say. (laughs) All of the phrases are permutations and combinations. Here's a trick. All of the phrases are permutations and combinations of saying, be well, I love you. Life is difficult, take care of yourself. It's okay, hang in there. So ready, set, let's bless each other, back and forth, one sentence each. Ready, go. I'm also noticing that spontaneously this liturgy has taken a turn for the hugging. (laughs) Which is one step up from holding hands, so I am now making it officially part of the liturgical choices. And I would like very much for um, everyone except Edie, because I need her to sit and play for a minute, to uh, stand up and come in a big circle all the way around quietly, and Edie will play.
I was listening to uh, the music and uh, feeling my heart and delight in it as always it does and looking at all of you and realizing how much my heart delights from that as well and imagining that that's true for all of us that the music delights the heart because that's one of the things that human beings share and uh, looking around and recognizing oneself as part of a human family and delighting in that I look at all of us and sometimes by, by how we look and sometimes and because I know a lot of us I know that we're very representative of a world full of people. We are men and women, and old and young, and in good health and in not such good health. And partnered and unpartnered, some of us are partnered with same gender partners, others with opposite gender partners. We're a whole room full of people with ears that hear music, hearts that delight. We're all different shades and colors. We had parents and grandparents and they had parents and grandparents that came from all different parts of the same extraordinary rock in space. And we all of us have hearts that hear music and delight, that want to be friendly, that want to console, that want to rejoice, that feel other people's pain, And really, when we're in our best tune, when the music of our heart is singing exactly in the tune that it's meant to sing, we have hearts that rejoice in other people's good fortune. I think about the heart as being something like a very rare musical instrument, like some particular form of uh, oh, ancient, rare string instrument like a clavier, something that makes particularly beautiful music and goes out of tune very easily. Needs to be tuned all the time. (laughs) And I think we're just like that. We have this particularly rare instrument that we got born with. And it keeps, just in the normal course of its life, just from moving around, it's like moving a clavier around. It goes out of tune. It bumps over this and that and this and that. I think the awareness of the fact that we are so lucky that we know uh, practices for retuning the heart. We know what it sounds like when it's in tune. We want to sing in that tune. And we want so much for the world to sing in that tune. And to be a part of tuning the heart of the world. So we can make a dedication of the merit of our being here together 
both as a recognition of tomorrow's anniversary and a uh, act of respect for the people who are celebrating the anniversary of a great loss, observing the anniversary of a great loss, a great personal loss. Also, in recognition of the fact that this is the second Wednesday of the month, and we have once again rededicated our hearts to precept living, that we're part of a community that does that, rejoicing in that, feeling the blessings of that. Let's dedicate the merit of this morning for the well-being of all beings everywhere. Omitting none. May all beings be peaceful, happy, come to the end of suffering. I'd like to sign this as if it were a greeting card that we send for the whole world. So I'll begin. Sign it when you sign it. Sign it loud enough so everybody hears what you've signed. Sylvia Borstein. Edie Hartshorn. Mary Rose. Erin Sheffield. Sherry Shannon. Angel Holich. Melissa DeMond. Jamie Dowsey. Diane Fladkin. Margaret Thompson. Sherry Reinhart. Gail Sands. Lynn McDonald. Stephanie Morgan. Linda Olman. John Gerstein. Jamie Parham. Elizabeth Rintoul. Barbara Wright. Nancy Angelo. Kim Gessner. Sheila Griffin. Diane Kelly. Nancy Bench. Sheila Balter. Chris Welch. Hester Granick. Carol Hannibal. Sylvia Israel. Shelley Trumbo. Zoe Harris. David Levine. Michelle Levine Levine. Marla Cass. Matthew Cardinal. Christine Essenberg. Phil Akers. Jan Coyne. Mark Blackburn. Roberta Skinner. Mary Greathouse. Joe Latin Tate. Chris Greylout. Robin Keller. Rosemary Wilson. Maria Stratton. Eugenia Morris. Andrea Wiggum. Joan Gregory. Blythe Shelley. Judy Tannen. John Green. Gloria Burke. Diane Grotenitis. Betsy Zeeker. Francine Colvin. Rachel Henderson. Tom Thorpe. Janet Coates. Maggie Kay. Mary Kay Sweeney. Susan Doyle. Charles Bassetti. Terry DeMartini. Melissa Jones. Christina Colchak. Shane Snowden. Harry Messer. Nadia Bowman. David Axel. Baraka Drucker. Karen Oliver. Marty Gilliam. Francine Thomas. Connie Mary. Holly Brownstone. James Shaker. Corey Head. April Dubois. Betty Malloy. Barbara Dale. Heather Sunberg. Erica Teham. Betsy Grove. James Conway. Abaya. Anne Hiring. Dick Heitzman. Bernice Casey. Never a very good way to stop holding hands because the, <laughs> the impulse to do that is so overwhelming. Maybe what we could do is make an ohm sound together because that's a universal sound of uh, peace. And uh, we'll take a great breath in and then we'll 
will make a very long om out, and uh, because it will require us to bow to each other, we'll have to let go of the hands. <laughs> I'd like to invite those of you who have not been here on a Wednesday morning before to please come again and be part of our community. Come when you can and whenever you can. Take a breath. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.